Hello all you scientists and welcome on back to the Science Behind That Podcast. I am your host Atticus Hamilton and look, I think this is becoming a uh, regular occurrence with me. I'm really trying for it not to become a regular occurrence for me, but I think I was gone for almost three months. I think as of December 2nd, it would have been three months. Um... And you know, I I don't I'm not here to give excuses. You know, a lot of bad things happened to me over the past three months, um, which hindered my ability to upload episodes. Um, that being said, however, uh, things are looking better. Things are uh, looking brighter, and so as uh, I go forward, I'm gonna do my best to ensure that. Uh, I record one of these episodes on Monday and on Friday and uh, uh, post that for you guys. You know, the whole reason I started this podcast was because I felt like and I still feel like um, education in the sciences, especially for the general public, is significantly lacking, especially about things that, you know, affect every one of us. Uh, and that's the whole reason why I started this podcast. So, if you'll bear with me, I'm going to do my best to keep up with a regular schedule. I have a list of ideas, so it's not like I don't have any ideas. I have a list of ideas. I will be back on Friday, uh, and you know I'm going to try and get back into my regular routine. So all that aside, ladies and gentlemen, today we are going to be talking about carbon capture. Um, So over the past couple days, I've been reading a lot of um, doom and gloom scenarios about how essentially when it comes to climate change, you know, staying below 1.5 degrees Celsius is no longer feasible. And we're really past the point of no return. And, and, and there have been a lot of people who have said, well, you know, considering that, why should we bother to do anything? Which to me is very sad. Um, you know, it's sad that in a way we're past the point of no return at staying below that 1.5 degrees Celsius. But I think the sadder thing to me is that there are a lot of people out there who figure that because of that, we should just give up. And um, for those of you who have been uh, a fan of this this podcast for a long time, you know that I always advocate to stand up and question everything. And along with that, never give up. You know, never give up. Uh, in anything you do, never give up. Uh, don't stop until your axe is covered in your blood. <laughs> um and, and I feel the same way about this. And so today, we're going to be talking about carbon capture and, and, and what this is. Because if I'm just being honest with all of you, the reality is that even by 2030, the likelihood that the entire world will no longer be using ice systems or internal combustion engine vehicles or carbon-producing energy is very, very small. And so we need to do something to curb those emissions as we transition off of um, fossil fuels. Because 
unfortunately, um, even if we could flip a switch and turn off all fossil fuels today, it would be impossible for us as a species to do so. Maybe in America, maybe in you know Europe we could do it, but the biggest issue is that we can't go to third world countries that have just gotten cars and say, yeah, sorry guys, you can't use that car anymore. We can't do that. So we need to come up with solutions to remove the carbon dioxide that we're adding into the atmosphere while we transition away from fossil fuels. And how do we do that? Carbon capture appears to be the way to do that. So what is it? So carbon capture is um, basically it is using either biological entities like trees or cyanobacteria or mechanized machinery to suck carbon dioxide either out of the atmosphere, that's um, direct carbon capture, that's usually where in the machinery sense you have a machine that has a big fan and um, as air goes through it, uh, there's a membrane that selectively removes just carbon dioxide uh, and then lets everything else pass through, the oxygen, the nitrogen, the argon, etc. Or you have carbon capture in the sense of um, in industrial processes. So you'll have, there are a lot of um, energy production facilities out there um, and um, cement facilities or iron making that integrate carbon capture. And so what that is is, they have a mechanism in place to capture the exhaust of whatever process it is that that facility is doing and um, remove the carbon dioxide. And in a very um, basic sense, what happens is the exhaust from that industrial process is captured and then goes through a catalyst. And that catalyst, much like with the direct air carbon capture, that catalyst collects that carbon dioxide and then sends it usually through piping um, or through gas transport of some type to a facility that then stores it. And so how is that carbon dioxide stored? Most of the time, carbon dioxide is stored in either spent oil wells deep under the Earth's crust Um and they just pump that carbon dioxide into that uh, spent oil well, or it's spent in um, hypersaline reservoirs. And so there's a couple examples of that, specifically in Scandinavia, where facilities that do implement carbon capture will take that carbon dioxide and they will store it in basically groundwater sources but that's salt water so salt water groundwater and the reason it's specifically salt water groundwater is because a the carbon dioxide dissolves really nicely into salt water and b um, people aren't going to be accessing those wells for drinking water so that's sort of the the mechanized approach to carbon capture now there are um, NCCSs, which are called Natural Carbon Capture and Storage. And that is a whole variety of different things. So 
Activated carbon is an example. Carbon soaks up um, carbon soaks up uh, carbon dioxide. Ironically, right? Um, charcoal soaks up carbon dioxide, and so that is used in certain circumstances, particularly in industrial circumstances, to soak up carbon dioxide. Um, another example is trees. Believe it or not, forests are very, very helpful for carbon capture. Uh, and I'm not sure if anyone's particularly surprised, um, by that, but, um, trees soak up a lot of carbon dioxide. And if I remember correctly, um, one what was it? I think it was a million hectares of forest can soak up um, enough carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to curb our greenhouse emissions. Um, and, you know, that sounds great, but a million hectares is a lot. It's a lot of forest. Um, and the biggest question with that is, is there enough political will to do something because I think, you know, um, no offense to all the boomers out there, but it would appear that the, the people who are going to be the ones to solve this problem are the people who care most about it. And I think that is the, um, newest generations. Um, so the millennials and my generation, uh, I think, I think the the youngest people on this earth are probably going to be the ones to fix this uh, because it seems like that's where the will is. Unfortunately, in most countries around the world, the political leadership is still very old people. And in a lot of ways, that's a good thing because with age com comes wisdom sometimes. But in a lot of ways, still, it's a bad thing because with things like climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, it's not seen as, a, as pressing of a threat with the older generation that it is with the younger generation. But, you know, soapbox aside, trees uh, rehabilitating Earth's forests do potentially serve as a good way to help reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions. The other is one that I'm um, very, very uh, health, or very uh, advocate about is um, cyanobacteria. Now, cyanobacteria are pretty amazing, and I know that I'm biased as a microbiologist, but they are pretty amazing. One hectare of cyanobacteria can suck upwards of a ton of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So, how many tons of carbon dioxide were put into the atmosphere last year? 38 billion tons. That's a lot of carbon dioxide. Now, but the, the importance of that is that cyanobacteria would serve as a significant um, decrease to that carbon dioxide emission. And the great thing about algae is that they can be refined into products that we use on an everyday basis along with nutritional products. There's a lot of um, health foods out there that use protein from algae because um, unlike plant, most plant proteins, the bioavailability of, of, of 
algal algal protein is upwards of a is around a hundred percent on par with animal proteins, and that's because algae aren't plants; they're protists, um, and so they have groups of both animalia and uh, plantea. Um, and so the proteins that protists use are again around it's between 90 and 100 percent bioavailability in the human body which means that 90 to 100 percent of the algal proteins you eat your body can use which is on par with animal proteins and this is great compared to things like pea protein which is only six percent um so uh not only would mass algal farms in previously useless swaths of um, land uh, reduce CO2 in the atmosphere, but it could also serve to manufacture biofuels. It could also serve to um, produce biodegradable plastics along with, you know, um, beauty creams. I don't know if you guys know this. Um, I know there are a lot of women that listen to this podcast. A lot of the beauty stuff that you guys use, there's algae in it. Um, and specifically there's algal proteins in there, um, from spirulina, that is the go-to algae that, um, do a variety of things, um, that, that people prize in beauty. The, um, beauty cream called La Mer, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it, that is, the ingredients from that are almost exclusively from algae, and that's the entire brand of that that company, is that it's um, cream from the sea because it comes from algae. So those are the two biggest natural methods of carbon capture, algae and forest. So if we could combine mass-scale algal farms with plant rehabilitating Earth's forests, then maybe we could curve greenhouse gas emissions. The big thing here is cost, as with everything. You see, carbon capture in the mechanized sense that we discussed earlier in the episode, that's really great. Um, because carbon capture can achieve 14% of the, of the uh, global greenhouse gas emissions reductions needed by 2050. And that's just with mechanized carbon capture methods. And in my opinion, that's amazing. So what is the biggest hurdle here? The biggest hurdle is that it's expensive. And um, the sad reality is that a lot of companies do not want to invest the capital into these mechanisms to um, to reduce their carbon emissions. Uh, now there are some, and there is a there is an important piece to this here. The important piece to this is that generally speaking, it's not financially beneficial for a company to do this because there aren't good um, benefits in place. At least in the United States, there aren't good government benefits, government subsidies in place to incentivize companies to do carbon capture, A, and B, you can't sell carbon dioxide anywhere. I mean, you can in a way um, because oil companies will use carbon dioxide to extract more oil out of the ground, which is horrible. 
But other than that, carbon dioxide isn't really a um, marketable asset, you know, because in all honesty, you can get it from anywhere. So can you turn carbon dioxide into pure carbon? Sure, of course. But why would somebody pay to have the raw form when they uh, carbon dioxide when they can pay another company to have the purified form of carbon? So there's not really a, a marketable product there that a lot of companies can get behind. And so because of it, the, 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 the few companies that um, have done this, i.e. there's 26 currently, there's only 26 commercial scale carbon capture products that are opening around the world with 21 more planned early in development and 13 in advanced development. And that sounds like a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not. Considering how many energy production companies there are around the world, it's not a lot. And the reason those those um, carbon capture products have been set up is because either A, they were set up with subsidies in mind, or B, they were, they were deemed to be cost effective um, by the company setting them up. As in, for example, ExxonMobil has set up a bunch of um, carbon capture systems. And most likely, because the United States doesn't really hand out um, incentives for companies to implement this, most likely the reason why ExxonMobil set this up is because A, they figured it would make them more favorable in the public eye. So they figured people would be like, hey, well, you know, Exxon is thinking about the future because they have um, NCCSs or uh, DACSs, you know, so we should buy from them. A or B, they figured that they're making so much profit from their other sectors that the cost of maintaining uh, carbon capture wouldn't be prohibitively expensive. You know, it wouldn't cut into their bottom line. And that's the biggest thing. And and so at the end of the day, natural carbon capture seems to be the best option because everyone likes forests. Well, I don't know about everybody. I know a couple people that don't, but most people like nature. And so if we can rehabilitate Earth's forests, that would serve as not only a great thing for the ecosystems and the planet, but as an economic driver you'd have more national parks, you'd have more state parks, etc. And then with cyanobacteria and other algae, there's almost a limitless possibility of opportunities that go along with that. I mean, cyanobacteria, if they're starved of uh, nitrogen and phosphorus, produce a lot of hydrogen, and that hydrogen could be used as a fuel source for FCEVs, uh, fuel cell electric vehicles. A, B, you know, algaes like spirulina are um, becoming more and more popular these days for health food. So companies, again, like Shell or Exxon, which have already invested money into this, can grow up these algal pools, which would suck out carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and they can then use the algae to either make biofuels or they can make um, uh, food, you know, for people uh, or animals, 
Uh, algal feed has proven to be very effective for putting on weight in feed animals like cows and pigs. So there's almost a limitless number of opportunities here. And uh, again, I know that I'm biased as a microbiologist, but it would appear as though once again, we have to turn to the microscopic world to solve our problems because in all honesty, they've solved the problems of, of uh, high CO2 levels in the atmosphere for about 1.5 to 2 billion years. So ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Before I end it today, I, I want to give my one last uh, word of I guess my my last thought here about this. I think that staying below 2 degrees Celsius is possible. But I don't think it is possible in the sense that, you know, by 2050 we will get rid of all carbon producing systems. I just I don't think that's possible. It's not feasible. And so if we want to stay below that temperature threshold, we have to transit continue the transition to renewables, but we also have to implement carbon capture like this. And potentially, maybe we need to implement ways of cooling the earth by uh uh, SAI and uh, Friday's episode will be talking about SAI so stay tuned for that we'll be ta- I'll be breaking down what SAI is um, what it means and if it actually is a potential um, uh, com- a competitive way to reduce earth's temperature so stay tuned for that ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for listening to today's episode thank you for bearing with me uh, with this and, and, and all of your continued support for what I do here. Um, again, I'm going to try and, and keep to my regular schedule. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, have a fantastic Monday. Have a fantastic week. I'll see you all on Friday. And remember, stand up and question everything. Mm-hmm.